Now, the Book of Daniel, as you know, is to be considered in these few meetings. We start with chapter 1, as you would expect, the first chapter of the Book of Daniel. Uh, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and besieged it. And the Lord, Lord gave Jehoiakim king, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favoured, and skilful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Mesech, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your stock? And then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzer, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenances of the children not eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzer took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink, and gave them purse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, Azariah, therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times 
better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. That will do for our reading. <clears throat> One thing that human beings have nothing whatever to do with, and that is deciding what period in the world they should be allowed to dwell on earth. And I'm sure if any of us had been selecting a time to live in the world and a place to live, the last place we would think of living and the last time we would want to have lived in it was the days of Daniel as a prince in Jerusalem. He had the, we would almost say, humanly speaking, the misfortune to arrive in the world at a very sad time for his people. That had nothing to do with him. We've always to remember there's much in our lives that we just don't control. And be satisfied to leave that that way. God has settled that and let him settle it. And that's his affair. What we have to do, of course, is to learn to make the best of where God puts us. And that's exactly what we will try and find out from this precious book of Daniel. Now, uh, Daniel is one man whose life spans a long period. He, as you know, was a lad possibly in his teens when the Babylonian Empire was established. And he lived throughout his existence. And right over into the next empire, the Persian Empire, he lived right as we just read at the end of chapter 1, until the days of Cyrus. That means to say that the whole 70 years of uh, Israel's uh, servitude to the king of Babylon, Daniel lived through it all. And that, I think, is marvelous. What we should learn from that is this, that in spite of all the dangers that he was in, and all the apparent disasters that were about to fall on him, he was still spared through the ball and was preserved right to see not only the start of the kingdom and its continuance, but right the very end of Babylonish power and glory. Now he differs from all the other prophets in this respect, like that is up to here, up until here. But all the prophets that God had raised up in Israel, there were always men that spoke to Israel and warned them of their evils and of the ways to live. For as Daniel's ministry was almost entirely either a narrative of himself and his doings, but particularly his messages to foreign kings. To put it in our modern language, he was a missionary prophet. That is, his message was for foreigners. And he's the great sample of a man who has God to make known his name among the heathen. And that is a most important sight to uh, remember, that God has an interest in mankind, wicked men as well as good men. Here's a man, Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, cruel, ruthless man. And here's a big empire of wicked rulers of one form or another. And yet God is making his name known there. And he's sending a missionary there. And he's going to make known his name in that part. Now that's most important. Dear child of God, don't forget you have a big business in hand. And your big business in this world is making God know that he's not known. Meeting with people that don't deserve, we might say, to know anything that's worth knowing. They're so wicked and sinful and vain. 
and yet God in his wonderful way means that those people should have a knowledge of himself and gain that knowledge through our missionary efforts. Was there somebody I hadn't even thought of going to the mission field? No way, you needn't cross the ocean or the further lands explore. You can find the heathen nearer. You can meet them at your door. You see, you don't need to go too far to meet with heathen. And I often think that one of the ways that God has of reaching mankind is to send his children into circles where God is not wanted or appreciated, and in those circles they're allowed to make known his name. Then again, I think you, you will agree that Daniel was greatly influenced by those who went before him. Possibly, we have no idea. But possibly one of the men that especially helped young Daniel was the man Jeremiah. For you know, Jeremiah was in close contact with the palace where this prince was reared. And therefore he had a great opportunity, Daniel had a great opportunity of benefiting by the presence of that older man, the prophet Jeremiah. Always remember that uh, not only do men's words stay with us, but men that God hath raised up has have an influence upon us. Their very character, their trials, their messages from God, they leave impressions, and their whole demeanor leaves impressions upon the mind. Jeremiah was, as you know, alive at the very time when Israel was carried into captivity. And so when this boy, that we'll speak on in a moment or two, was carried away, the prophet Jeremiah was right in the thick of the whole experience. Therefore, he was indebted to that former prophet. Dear brother, whatever else you do, get rid of the spirit of independence. Now, please do. It's distressing to see how many, and they gather a wee smothering of knowledge, and they scrape it up, and they think, well, we have it all, and nobody's any use now. We can carry on without the rest. Now, that sort of spirit is not helpful. God has so arranged it that we all need each other, and we need to benefit from one another. And all of us that are a while on the way, we owe a debt that we can never repay to those older men that are now in glory whose voices we will never hear again. Now, keep that in mind. So please, uh, try your best to get rid of that spirit of independence, either as a company or as an individual. This idea of isolationists that many have seemingly adopted and sit away up on a pedestal in cold isolation, it is neither good for them nor beneficial to those they influence as they meet with them from time to time. The prophecy of Daniel, as you know, divides into two major parts, very clearly stated. The first part is six chapters, it's equally parts, it's not often we get the chapters equal, but it's equal. And six chapters are what we might call uh, those uh, experiences that Daniel had, and those uh, historical bits, those are the bits that people will want to understand. 
But then you see, I began to think of possibly there are young believers coming to these meetings. And you bear with them. You older folk that know it all. You just bear with them because they don't know it all. And they might benefit from the early chapters just as much as we would try to benefit from the latter chapters. Now, it's not only divided in two parts, but the strangest thing, I suppose, about it is that it's written in two different languages. Now, don't be thinking of your authorized version when I say that. But it's uh, like the book of Ezra, in this respect, not, uh, not only is part of it written in Hebrew, but part of it is written in Aramaic or uh, Syrian or uh, Chaldee, whatever word you like to use, to describe the other language that was used in Babylon. Now, that's a strange thing, isn't it? That a man's writing a book. And he comes to a certain spot, and he just changes the language, and he starts writing another language. And then after he's written a word in another language, he goes back to his own language again. If you've got a letter like that, you know you'd be all amazed about it, wouldn't you? You'd be surprised about it. Why did he change his language? Why did he use the heathen languages, we might say, and he's not the religious one of his own fathers? Now, I think you will find, if you examine the part that's written, this starts in verse 4 of chapter 2, and it goes right on to the end of chapter 7. If you look at those chapters, you'll find that they have mainly to do with the heathen side of things. And I'll put it just simply like this. When he's writing to heathens and about heathens, he uses heathen language, if you'll allow that. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to do away with inspiration. That's not the point. I'll mention this in a minute. But then when he's dealing with the recovery of God's people, he goes back to their own language. Now, I think maybe that would be a wee lesson for us all, wouldn't it? But when we're speaking the gospel, we preach it in its own language, as it were. We preach it to sinners, not sinners can understand us. And when we're preaching to Christians, we preach to Christians that can understand us. We change our language, in a sense, though we're supposed to always speak in kind of English as best we can. We were quite clear on that. Now, I suppose you younger Christians will also know that the New Testament is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. Because, you see, New Testament language has to do with the world at large. And therefore, the world's language is used in its original writings. That means to say that in our Bibles, and I hope you young folk are clear on this, you have three languages introduced. You have the Hebrew language. Now, Abraham and his posterity have carried right through. That's one of the things that Abraham brought into existence, we might say, the Hebrew language. Then you have the Chaldee language that we have intermixed both in Ezra and in this group and a verse, I think, in the prophecy of Jeremiah. And then we have the New Testament written in Greek. Now, there's a reason for all that. God has worked. Did you ever notice that when God was speaking to Paul in the Damascus Road, he used the Hebrew language? He spoke to him in the Hebrew tongue. That must have impressed Paul Gridley. To know that God would speak in, we might say, the very language of his fathers and speak to him in the Hebrew tongue. Now, don't ask me what language we use up in heaven, but we're all going to be able to understand each other and sing together as we were here yesterday. Well, what language that will be? We do not know. But at least there's one thing sure. There will be a language in heaven that all of us can share it. 
Now, that's the second point or so that we brought out in the book of Daniel. The next thing that we want to say is this, that the book opens with the first captivity of the children of Israel that were carried down to Babylon. Now, for the sake of the young again, it's quite likely, I think correctly, that there were three occasions when Nebuchadnezzar took prisoners to Babylon. That covers a period of perhaps the, the most of uh, 15 to 18 years, somewhere in there. So that we must imagine that there just was one invasion of Palestine, and that the whole nation was carried away, and that they were landed in Babylon. And that was the whole thing. Now that's not correct. When Nebuchadnezzar came the first time, he evidently chose the choicest in the land the princes that Daniel was amongst. He came up again and he took the great mass of the people. There was a complete riddance, as it were, of the population that was worthwhile. He left a few of the poor. And then, possibly with a very short space between, he came and he burnt the house and he burnt the city and he destroyed and broke down the wall. I hope you're all clear on that. That simply means, now will you please remember that there are three thoughts you keep clear in your mind now when you're studying your Bible. One is this, you keep the thought of the captivity. I should say the servitude in mind. They shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then you keep in mind the captivity. And then you keep in mind the desolation. I can just tell it. Remember those three words. The servitude, the captivity, and the desolation. I thought that was all the same thing. No, it's not. They didn't begin at the same time, and they didn't end at the same time. Oh, you're all frightened now, are you? The servitude began when Nebuchadnezzar took the first prisoner, and the nation came under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar, even though most of it wasn't carried away, but they were under the servitude that started. Now that's the 70 year servitude which ends with the decree of Cyrus in the first chapter of the book of Ezra. You hear that? That's the servitude. The captivity began at the time when the nation was carried away. And that again lasted for 70 years. But didn't end as quick as the servitude. And then the desolation. You say, when did they begin? When they began when the city was burnt. The place was left desolate. I think common English would tell you that. You say, when did they end? They ended when the temple was built. Now, would you notice that in the building of the temple, they were held up for the perhaps maybe 18 years or so, or for a number of years anyhow. I'm not going to try and keep numbers in my head for my mind wouldn't fool them. And you know why they were held up? Because you see, the 70 years desolation hadn't ended. And until they were ended, and in a matter of months, the house was built. When God's clock, God's clock comes to the right thing, he can get things done just in his own way. Will you please keep that in mind? Oh, I think it's marvelous. I think that God's working through a program. Now, you, you men all know this. 
the first man to get a program was Abraham. And he got an outline of the, of the time that Israel would spend in Egypt. And that there would be 400 years. That is, from the birth of Isaac to the coming up out of Egypt was 400 years. You're not a bit happy about that. God gave the program. This is what I want you to notice. And if Israel had wept and prayed and cried and sighed and grew, they couldn't shorten the time. God's program must be kept. And then God said to Abraham, The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. So another 38 years had to be spent in the wilderness before that cup was filled, and God would allow them to go over and destroy those nations. I want you younger Christians to get to see that your God, and my God, and the God of the Bible, is a God who can foretell the future and do it with precision and accuracy that would amaze you. And what seems to be Controlled by man is altogether over, ruled by a major hand far beyond what we can understand. <laughs> now, I want to take our minds just quietly, thoughtfully, to a lot. And to a number of lots. There are probably in their early teens, maybe 14 to 16. He brought up in a palace. He's a prince. He's of royal stock. He's been well attended to. He has been what many in the nation knew nothing about. He's been educated. Because that was a favor granted to the princes and important folk in the land. Now he's going to be carried away from that circumstance. Maybe not just as special in his day as many another day. But he's in the city of Jerusalem and he's round about there. And now he's lifted out of that. And he's landed away down. He's got him mutilated. And he's put down into captivity into Babylon. That was a big trial. Took some of you young lads out of your nice home your mother's attendance and your care and your kindness landed you somewhere in the heart of Africa among savages away into the dark corners of Russia you will find yourself a very different boy no longer parents to lean upon no mother to go to no one through advice. There they are. They've landed in a new land. Where everybody speaks a new language. Where the whole outlook is so different. And everything's trying and testing. And everything is so oppressive that it's hard for us to feel as those lads must have felt. Powerless in the hands of an enemy. And that would put anyone to the test especially very young. Now you will notice more, and very quickly notice, that as soon as you start to read this first chapter, the emphasis is always on the Babylonian's wrong. Brilliant to the 
bring the vessels out of the sanctuary of God and bring them to the house of his God. You see, once to keep, once we want to keep in mind this week, if we can ever think of it at all, and that is when we're talking up our Bible and Babylon and all that kind of thing, we're looking at the world religious life. The whole thing where Nebuchadnezzar was steeped in religion. The godless religion. Don't let us forget that. Wicked, godless religion, but nonetheless religious. Babylon is always an illustration, a picture of the religious world. But you know, the world has to have a religion. And the world is still being anxious about religion. And the features of it are portrayed here for us in this opening chapter of Daniel. Then again, you will notice that when these young boys arrived down there, the big thought in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar was this. These are good material for our religious performance. We want the best. We want the best. You know, the religious work has never been satisfied with anything but the best that nature can produce. We see in those boys the potential that, are, that is needed. And we're going to do two things with them. We're going to educate them in our language. We're going to do more than that. We're going to teach them the doctrines, the ideas of the Chaldeans. We're going to put into them uh, a cult, an idea of things that they know nothing about, but they have the ability to absorb it. We would naturally think that all that this great king was thinking about was a lot of boys, a lot of boys that uh, could, could speak his own language. Not at all. He's not educating them in the sense of just merely teaching them a language, but he wants to get them conformed to his way of thinking and to propagate and to, we might say, adorn his religious performances. He wants them along that line. And that's why he's so particular as to who he selects. They were, I was going to use some other language for the fact that children were supposed to understand. They were all people that were passing their language. They were the right kids. The right kids were all that. Maybe it would interest some of the boys here if they would at some time, maybe not now, but later on in life, if you can get a concordance that deals with original languages. If you notice that in this book of Daniel, you perhaps have the word know, and wisdom, and knowledge, and ability, and understanding, you have that word more often in Daniel than any other book in the Bible possibly. Maybe about a hundred times. And about a hundred words. Every word you can think of as a verse paid in to give us the idea we want able men. It's ability we want. We want knowledgeable men. We want wise men. We want shrewd men. We want capable men. That's what we're after. Now just take a glance at your Bible. I'm not asking you to read too much, but just take a glance at one of the verses and see. Look at verse 4. Children in whom was no blemish, 
but well-favored, not as they wanted, good looks, good personalities, skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Not only the tongue, but the learning as well. Note that. Now, do you see the pairing of a work? One on the top of the other. What other? Yes, the emphasis on the fact that these words are now major ability. They're to be lordly fellows. They're to be the right men and the right stuff at that. Now, just another glance to emphasize that. And uh, look at uh, verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inferred of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, and so on. So that you see you have wisdom and understanding, and so on. That is, he wanted men of capabilities. That's the great cry, you know, in the world today, isn't it? Hmm? That's why you see the religious world, if they're going to have a big campaign, they put the man's photograph on it to be nice looking. But if he's just an ordinary five eight, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put him on at all. You spoil the picture. See, they want to have more of the and the man with a nice smile, a nice countenance, you see. It's a real nice start, doesn't it? Okay, he's always a lovely different man, isn't it? You can sit and look at him for hours. Now you could. What he says matters nothing, but he has a lovely face. Well, that's what evidently Nebuchadnezzar wanted nice boys to look at. Again, isn't he a knowledgeable man? Oh, what he knows. What he knows. Look at what he knows. He's the greatest scholar in the country. Listen to his learning. Isn't that still being emphasized? Yes, you'd hardly get a man's meetings announced in the religious world so many letters after his name. What's that to do? Because the preaching was going to mean anything, the letters were going to mean anything to his preaching. But you see, that's to impress the people. Now, this man's no numbskull. This man has got the, he has got the grave. He has got the, he has got the grey matter. He's the boy. He knows them. That's the worst. We want a man with knowledge. Whether he knows God or not, he knows a different matter. Whether he's a fellowship with the Almighty or not, a different matter. As long as he has knowledge. That's the reason we want to impress the importance of knowledge. Doctrinating young man is a very solid God, isn't it? Putting ideas into young men. Oh, I think that's that to me is very solid. To poison a man's thinking. To ruin a man with ideas in his mind that will be his ruination in time. And if he continues that way, he'll be ruined for eternity. My judge that that is something that should make us shudder. Poor are young men. And if they left, if they had not got a knowledge of God and in them before they had reached their teens, they would have been ruined for the rest of their life. And that I judge to be most important. And the next thing is this. Now, in order to keep up their good appearance and their healthy look, and possibly to develop their physique. The king decided that he would select a special diet for them. And he said they were to receive a portion from the king's meat. 
That is to say, the boys, the captains, were moved to eat the king's meat. And what was most important? By the king's meat. And you couldn't have better. Couldn't have been better. You know, the most of prison fare is not too good. And uh, people carried into captivity, they are usually fed on the meanest. Oh, I, I often think of those places like where the star of the man there during the war. I was in a house, but uh, it was from Austria, Hungary, when they'd been captured during the Second World War. And he told me that every four weeks they went into a doctor, and uh, the lady doctor, and she pinched the back of her neck, and there was any flesh between the skin. You were set for another monster. And the last test was until the two skins rubbed close together. And when they rubbed close together, then she said, that was that's enough people you can even go. You were done. You never recovered, Carly. You died usually uh, as a result of that. Some of them started to eat too quickly and then after to be Starved a slice of bread in the day, cutting timber in an old pit of the cell, up and down until the poor men were reading how to make them. And that's when a Roman Tain generation. And I was out about the outskirts of Vancouver, and somebody with me, and maybe bring you to that monk's house if he's still alive, who had that better experience. But that's not how these chapters are going to be treated. No, no. They're going to get the best that the king can provide. Why, look what he wants to see it for you, said your nice, nice appearance and keeping up their good looks. And he wants them to be fat uh, and flourishing on his diet. And why the boys didn't leave it? I wish that somebody puts those old fellows in those days they were trying to tell you. It's not a bit of a for, for, for Daniel. Later on, really, that he made them with my wine, so that he was neither a vegetarian, nor was he a teetotaler, as we might put it in the strongest sense. No, no, not even the point at all. Why did they refuse the food? Mind you, it's a time when you can eat in the bed when you're in your teens. And they just know right well, you've got a voice down in their teens at the table. Mind you, they can clean up a bit. And a wee bit of meat would go well at that age, wouldn't it? The old fellow, Yeti, you know, he wouldn't mind. Maybe his not too good. He wouldn't mind whether he was taken from him or not. But the young man, you know, he would like it. Why would they not take it? They knew. In their conscience, they understood that that had been offered to idols. That was defiling meat. And by eating the king's meat, they were having fellowship with his idolatry. And with a good conscience, they couldn't take it. And that's a sudden thing, isn't it? There was nobody there to take notes from them, and there was nobody taking their photograph and saying, I saw him doing it. And uh, there was nobody clipping a wee bit out of the newspaper and saying, Did you see where so and so was, was doing this or doing that? There was nobody watching them at all. Not a one of And there wasn't one about the palace without a set of words in the morning. Just as great boys are getting a nice meal today, they'd have been very happy with them. There was no one to attack them. There was no one to run away home and say, Did you see the disgraceful thing? Hebrews sitting eating idolatrous food. You would wonder they hadn't a conscience about it. No, nobody knew anything about it. I mean, nobody would care. 
was going to put the man in charge of them. I was going to say the principal of the college, for that really was the master, for this is the Royal College. I suppose you always knew this, that I like to get the word royal beside the college, even the Royal College of Mercy, did you ever notice that? And the Royal College of this, and the Royal College of that, and the Royal College of something else. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that? Well, let's go to the Royal College, you say. That was the King's College. But like they are at the front, you know. The Royal College. Yes. This principal of the Royal College, he began to worry, worry about himself. He says, you know, you boys are not as nice looking and as favorable looking and as well nourished as the other boys. I get into trouble because I shouldn't have let you off with this. Well, now, Daniel doesn't put it too strong to me. just says, you just let us test. We have a preliminary test. And ten days I didn't know maybe that we would have had this pretty ten days. I did it so over that. But in ten days, just you have a look at us to see how we did. And after ten days on the vegetables, on the most of the solid, or whatever you'd like to put, you know, like these cursed beans and cursed peas and so on, nothing on the means. Beans, as you know, and beans are not a good thing for slimming with, but they follow in them evidently all that they required, and they partook of this food, and these seeds, or whatever they partook of, they nourished them up, and they were looking fair and hotter at the end of ten days. Dear brethren, I wonder who we know that our God can not only give us strength, but he can bless the food he gives us. Mind you, we all do it. I hope we do have a thankfully. We bow at the table. And we bow our heads and we thank God for the first. We delete our meat with singleness of heart. And we can not only thank Him for providing it, but we can also thank Him that He can bless it to us when we eat it. For we need His blessing with our food, as well as blessing Him for giving it to us. Then again, you will notice that these boys were introduced into changes. Now we listen carefully. Bablin were trying to change their name. Bablin was changing their food, but they weren't taking that. Bablin was changing their thinking. And Bablin was changing their language. And that's that to me best. Did you know that? some great leader or to honor some great doctrine or some name like that but they're not in the Bible now all the names that these boys had in some way or other connected them with the Lord that is their parents when calling them the name they introduced the idea of God or the Lord into their name now for the sake of you young Christians because they are young at one time don't forget that when you see a name in your Bible ending with E-L, that last two letters, those last two letters indicate that that's God, whatever the first bit of it may mean. For instance, Beth-El is hers, Beth is hers, and El is God. So wherever you get El at the end of a name, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of those E-Ls at the end, that always is 
when you get I are itch at the end of an ear in the New Testament, such as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Zedekiah or Zechariah, the I are itch. What is always to do with the law? And whatever the first bit will have to be the meaning of the name. So there's no difficulty there. I mean, it wouldn't have done, you know, in the quota of young boys called on God's name. They'll be reminded of God every time their names were called. Every day the Lord was called, it'll be over. Every time you were called for a meal, to have God's name mentioned in the word of Abraham. And what did the principal of the school do? What did he do? He just gave their names and put heathen names in. Instead of the name of God. That is, he brought in the names of the angels. And he linked their names in some way or other. I'm not going to interpret them all for you. Do I have a note of them at home? As to what they mean. But he changed the names so as to proceed in ideas every time they were called. Now, people don't think very much of names. But you watch what you call the Christians. The Bible calls them Christians. Calls them believers. Calls them saints. Calls them children of God. Oh, don't hear me, but all the Christians in all the world, but any higher. What do you put sectarian names on them? You're limiting the particular person. I wonder. I wonder. You're taking the name away from them. But God is doing them. And you're using worldly names to describe people. But God never used. Well, the Bible doesn't authorize you to do so. What's the way you speak of the Lord's people? Because we have got to remember that God has given names to us, and we should be thankful for them, and not ashamed of them, and we should use them with care when we're speaking of our fellow believers. In that way, we don't cause any division amongst the saints by labels. Now, there came this other question. Three years. You know, it's probably like the length of time you spend for getting a degree, isn't it, at the university? A three-year course, I think, usually. Yeah, maybe you take an honors degree, you get a four-year course. If you go for to be an architect, you'll maybe get a six-year course and three years more before they get a bit of practice. And if you're a doctor, you get something about the same. But three years is the, is the common period for taking a degree. So these boys, we might say, they had passed their examination, they had entered the college, and they were given three years to do their learning. On the examination, they came. And they went in before the came. In fact, they came. They them through. I don't know how you, of course, we have no idea what it was like, but for a human being, for a young boy, maybe in his 17, 18 year, to stand before never measure. You know, the hardy thought of it would have made you shudder. You know, they talk about the nervous, nervous examination, nervousness. Why would you call it? I want you have a name like a quarter You get nervous, for example. I can't find it. The second I need to find it, I have to stand in the front of the You know, I just need to say the word, and your head was off, you know. Hear me, we need to look, hear me, we need to look. He doesn't worry about a man losing his life. The sturge before the game. Never did a heathen eye look 
face à ma souffrance, il m'en a like this before. never seen the leg of him before. He couldn't question their ability. He couldn't question their success. He couldn't doubt for a moment that they had been all that he expected them to be. For little did he know that he was standing in the presence of those that were going to educate him in a very short time. And you dear men, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Here's a big man, big in his own estimation, big in his ideas, big in his adventures, big in his successes, big in his triumphs, big in every sense. And before all glory, both men and lessons from the other lives. Did you know, dear child of God, that you have a knowledge that the greatest men in the world know nothing about? Actually, meet the bones that are viewed in human estimation as great men. And yet, when it comes to eternal things, they know nothing. They know nothing whatever. And it's dreadful to think of the darkness that's in the world. And to think that we possess the light. You say, but if those boys go in and preach to the game, no, they we have to learn God willing. I say that God works to bring about our open doors. Now, I hope we appreciate that, because we, we need a lot of wisdom along these things. You see, some men are making the issue of sharing with everybody to be on preaching and everybody is saying. I don't think exactly that that's the way it's in the Bible. Now, I know where to be instant and season and out of season. But I can see in my Bible that God starts machinery movement to bring into life and to bring into opportunity those that were servant and those that he has a fitted to serve. So that the very movement of the king's mind was so ordered by God as we see in the word of God tomorrow night so that his very dreams would be now those very dreams, as it were, would be the very instrument that God would use to bring his men into promise. Now, let me get that well over into your mind, because I think you maybe haven't grasped what I'm saying. God had no nation in the old economy for making known his nation, that nation of Israel. He had a number of missionaries that he sent out from that nation to other lands to make known his name. He sent a Joseph, he sent Joseph down into Egypt. And you know that. And Joseph's example must have been a great cheer to these young men. And before we had finished, Joseph had made known in his image the name of the Lord. Now he sent one verse into Egypt to make known his name. Now he's sending these Hebrews, and particularly Daniel, into Babylon to make known his name. Missionaries, where are they from? But in each case, God wrought in the lands where he brought his servants to open the door for their testimony to be maintained. I hope we grasp that. That is, God brought the Hama into Egypt 
God broke the beam into numbers of nothing to bring Daniel into into view and to make his name known. And you see, the Persian Empire also needed a mission right. As you see, and Daniel in the dance then became the missionary to the Persian. God made his name known to heathen king. Bring on the I just go look now. What's he doing? He brings people into circumstances where they need to be repeated if it's all done. I wonder are we, are we aware that many of them have heart for the gospel? We have heard of everything. Nobody Oh, that God would make us. Wait a way to see that he's moving to bring people into conditions where they would rather hear, but otherwise they wouldn't listen. And that's what he did. But then they would die. Now, we have to prove to the Lord. Our destiny shall be great. 